it's time to start. We're going to get going. We've got a lot to cover today on the last part. This is the last um, lesson in this series on apologetics. So today we talk about world religions. Um, so we've purposely saved this one for the last. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed the class as much as, at least half as much as Scott and I have enjoyed teaching the class. It's been a real pleasure. I was telling Scott and, and Brad as well, as much as anything, I've gotten to know people that I otherwise would have not had, uh, had the, perhaps had the opportunity to. So it's been a real pleasure from that. So I want to start today by doing some announcements, and hopefully you have a handout um, with you as well. And to encourage you, as I did last time, although I, won't, I will not do this this week, to move all the chairs back. So I would encourage you, if you can, to move up. It would be helpful. And let me give you a reason why. Once again, it's raining. Um, people have a tendency to show up a little bit late, believe it or not, a little bit late sometimes for class. And it's just hard sometimes to come and sit in the front when <laughs> class has already started. So I'll give you a second to do that. we got some the final book giveaway. We have some extra copies of some things I gave away last week. Dr. Summers was kind enough to give me some extra copies of that. We do have a few announcements, and I think we have a couple of um, ladies here that will help me with this announcement, hopefully. Yes. So we have a sorority hospitality week this week and for with sign-up, so it's online as well. But I'm going to have Carolyn come up and talk through that. Is that right? You're sharing about women's Bible study. So let me do this then. If, uh, if you didn't know this, then Sorority Hospitality Week is this week, August 13th through the 19th. So sign up is online. And there's still quite a few needs according to this uh, email that I received. There's still quite a few needs. So they're really wanting people to come and help if you have the opportunity to do that. And then Carolyn's coming and giving a totally different announcement. And I have a handout. Yes, I'm so glad. There you go. Thank you. And per tradition, we're going to do some giveaways today. This will be the last part of it as well. Today, um, there, there are obviously a lot of good handouts and resources on this particular topic that we'll do today um, of world religions. I've posted one on the back, so it's on the very back of the handout. Actually, I, I did two. Um, so one is by James White, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. So Matt Gum, if he's here, then he, he helped me onto that really nice resource. Uh, and then there's one, there's a book by, there's three authors. Zane Pratt is the, is the primary one of an introduction to global missions. And I give you that resource, or I suggest it, because there's a chapter in that uh, on world religions that I think is pretty good. And this is a, this is a, it's an introduction, so it's a very accessible book 
to get into. And obviously, evangelism and world religions missions are tied intimately together. And so I, I gave a suggestion for that as well. All right, two, two final book giveaways. And then uh, last week we had further requests on Dr. Summers had put together a, a handout. It's really good on the chronological, um, kind of a day-by-day, almost hour-by-hour issue of the resurrection, what happened. So I'm going to give away, there's several of these copies. I'll give away some of these in just a second as well. Uh, it's a really good resource to have. I've looked through that, and it's very good. So last two books, I know this is one we've kind of plugged a lot. Um, I can't tell you the benefit of these two books. Um, so I've given away this one the last few weeks in class. I've also given away a few of these to some of my students as well, and former students who claim to be agnostic or atheist, and to kind of work through. So it eventually gets to the, this kind of ultimate question at the end about not just the fact of who is Jesus, but who is Jesus in connection to him as Lord and Savior, and why we hold what's called the exclusivity of Christ, why we hold to him and him alone as the means of, to God the Father, as a means of salvation. So if anybody's interested in this, I would highly encourage this book. It's really accessible to read. Yep. So Kathy, I'm going to pass it back. And then I've made no qualms about it. Um, R.C. Sproul has probably been the most influential theologian in my life, um, hands down. <laughs> um, I could go on and on about him, but I won't. Uh, but this is a really, um, really good book. It is called Def- Defending Your Faith. An Introduction to Apologetics, and particularly classical apologetics. So I made mention to you there's three different types of apologetics. There's sub-branches of that, but there's presuppositionalism, there's evidentialism, and then there's classical. And we've tried to hit on a little bit of all three of those things as well. Um, And this book takes one of the arguments that I gave for the existence of God, which um, which was the ontological or cosmological argument. So if you were here, you remember that. And he argues this in much more detail here. So I just gave you an overview of it. Here's where you'd want to get that. Yes. I just need to shut up and give it away. Then. <laughs> and then the last one is, um, are these handouts. So it's the resurrection of Jesus. This is a chronological event that's relating to the, to the resurrection day. So last week, I made an apologetic to you. I made an argument to you that is kind of an all or nothing argument. And that the resurrection, everything kind of hinges on that. And so I didn't want you to take my word for it. I took you to Paul, and he made that argument. He made it much better than I could ever make it. So if you're interested in one of these, I have several of them. All right. Let me go this way. Pass that back. Anyone else? What was the name of that book? Uh, Who is Jesus? Would you mind passing that one down? Anybody else would like a copy? All right. Gotcha. One more. All right. Thank you. Just a little reminder, it's a good time to silence cell phones if you have those. I'll do the same thing. So today's a little different because uh, since it's the last uh, lesson, and then obviously next week you'll pick up in your regular uh, ABF classes. So once again, just reiterate, I, I th- I'm assuming I'm, a sp- I'm speaking for, <laughs> for Scott as well. I know I am. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, um, being able to teach this class in the last six weeks, or to help Scott teach it as well. been thoroughly impressed with what that uh, young man's been able to do. I, could, I told Scott I could not do what he's been doing at his age. So it's impressive what he's been able to do to stand up here in front of you guys. It's an intimidating group. You guys are very knowledgeable about this topic. So it's, it's, um, I'm very pleased and to be able to teach this with him. So this last one today. So Scott and I are actually going to tag team this. So I'm going to introduce this topic And then I'm going to hand this off to Scott to kind of work through it. But I thought maybe as an introduction, so if you look at your handout today, we have, as a class, I've purposely bookend most of these lessons with two particular sections 
in the New Testament. So one of them is from the book of Acts, Acts 17, where Paul goes to the Areopagus and he confronts several groups of philosophers. He, he confronts the Epicureans um, and he argues to them, and the Stoics as well, that this God of whom um, that the Athenians were worshiping, they worshiped a lot of gods. They were very, as to quote Paul, they were very religious. And so Paul takes that opportunity to um, sort of leap into an argument with them. And he presents to them a case for their own poets. So Paul's very learned, right? So he quotes to them an ancient Greek poet by the name of Epimenides. And Paul says, in, in, this, in this unknown, the statue of this unknown God that you have, that you live, move, and you have your being. But Paul doesn't leave them there. He argues from the sense that God is creator. But, as we've talked about, while God is, yes, no less than creator, he's actually much more than that. And what Paul means by that in that sense is that he's, he's more than just the maker of the world. He's actually come in a person as well. And so Paul narrows the argument down to the resurrected Christ. And that's why last week I think it was so important to look at in Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians as well. Well, the other place that we looked at is Romans chapter 1. And if you could study perhaps any chapter in the whole New Testament, this may be the ultimate chapter to look at. Paul covers so many things, and you have to pay attention to the, to sometimes to the minute phrasing that Paul uses as well. But So, for example, I borrowed from that phrase in Romans 1 where Paul says, by the things that are made, we actually know that there's a God. And we actually know a lot about him. We know his divine attributes, his invisible nature. So this is where Paul starts in that. Well, that's where we're going to go today. So I'm going to give you a second to turn to Romans 1. And we're coming back to that passage today. So it's just an introduction, set this up, and then I'll turn this over, as I said, to Scott in just a second. Romans chapter 1. And I'll start particularly with verse 18. It's a good place to start in this. We live in a culture today that actually becoming more and more um, kind of a divided camp. So we see a lot of people today. I run into several people, and I work at a Christian school, but I see this within students who um, either claim to be agnostic or claim to be atheists. So we've talked about those terms before. Well, there's another term that's really prevalent in our culture today. And if you watch TV or read the news or follow Twitter at all, you know this one's, this one's sort of at the apex of it. And it's a term called religious pluralism. So I'll let you write that in your notes for a second. I didn't put that on the handout, but this, I think it's worthwhile to know this. Some of you probably heard this term before. So remember we talked about the, when, you, when you tag on a suffix, the word ism, onto a word. Well, it means the philosophy or something or the worldview or the idea behind something. <laughs> so religious pluralism is this. Religious pluralism is the argument that there are many ways to God and that all of them are of equal value. There's just different ways to get there. Now, on the handout, I probably should have moved this up. I didn't put it in a very good place. But if you, if you skip down to Roman numeral number two and then go down to point number four, it says the mountain analogy. Do you see that? Well, if you could pull that up and connect it to this, I'll draw this out. So if this is a mountain. The mountain analogy is this, is that at the top, there's God. And religious pluralism comes along and makes this argument. Well, actually, there's not just one way to God. There are, if you've ever hiked up a mountain, you know that there are actually several ways to get up a mountain. So Everest, if you've ever seen people hike Everest, there's actually several ways, two or three ways to get up, and some more dangerous than others. But that argument, that analogy holds here as well. And we live in this culture today who holds to this idea really tightly, that there are many ways to God. As a matter of fact, if you want to see this uh, on display, you can go back on to YouTube or you can go online and watch a con one of the confirmation hearings where one of the senators, Bernie Sanders, 
rips, tears into a particular nominee because he's held to the faith of Christianity. And what we see on full display in that confirmation hearing is religious pluralism to the extent. And what usually happens with Christianity is this, that we are arguing that there's only one way to God through his son. This is called the exclusivity of Christ. And the reason we hold that is because he's the resurrected Lord. Lewis, who's really great to borrow a quote from and to read, Lewis says this in this quote. He says that Christ himself didn't leave the option open to us, whether we can choose this way or that way, this path or another path. But Lewis goes on to say this. He says, either Jesus is Lord over all or he isn't Lord at all. Lewis says that Jesus is either Lord over all or he isn't Lord at all. So what's Lewis saying here? Well, one of the first things we, we did, first lesson, is I talked about we hold to absolute truth, and you can't get away from that argument. And as believers in Christ, we hold to the fact of what Lewis is saying here. We hold to the law of non-contradiction. Jesus can't be the Christ and the Antichrist at the same time in the same relationship. He's either Lord or he's not. And so that's the argument. This is the hinge point which this is made. Well, really quickly, there's two objections that come to this with Christianity, and it comes from religious pluralism. So we're arguing for the exclusivity of Christ. He is the only way. Well, one of the first objections is this. Well, Christianity is, you're, you're arrogant. You're arrogant to say that this is the only way, right? You've ever heard that? I've had that told to me. How dare you tell me this is the only way? There's a lot of ways. People are genuinely sincere in their beliefs. You're, you're, you're being a bigot. You're this is hate speech, right? We hear this all the time. And yet, if you think about that argument a little bit, the pluralist is arguing that I'm being and you're being arrogant for being so exclusive. And yet, if you think about that for a second, if you turn that argument around, they're guilty of the same arrogance. Because they're arguing that Christianity and all other religions that claim to be exclusive are wrong. So there's a, there's a kind of reciprocal nature to that as well. The second objection that we're going to see and that you will run into, and if you haven't, you will if you're outspoken about your faith, is this. It's not only the fact that you're arrogant, but then it comes the indictment of this. Well, if this is true, there's, there's only one way, and there's not many ways, then Here's the old adage, and I'm going, to, I'm going to see if you can fill in the blank. Here's what people will say back, right? They'll, they'll say this. Well, that's not fair. It's the fair argument, right, which is really common in, um, in this world today that we hear. That's not fair, right? Well, I've challenged students sometimes to think of this idea of fairness. So one thing is when people say that kind of term, they don't have, a, obviously, a good idea what the gospel is or about. So what do I mean by that? Well, think of it this way. God is not obligated. If he's holy, and he is, he's not obligated to make any way to him. So the question comes, why is there, more, why is there, not, why is there just one way? Why are there not many ways? Well, another question to ask back to that is, well, why is there one way? <laughs> because if you think about this for a second, if you read the Gospels very clearly, God is not obligated nor have to make a way to himself. He has every right to send us all to perdition. Why? Because it's not fair? No, because it's totally fair. Because God is holy and he's just. So what is just? What does justice mean? Well, it's getting what we deserve. And ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you as a condemned sinner, and I can't make my way to God. There's no way. I can't do enough to get to God because there's not any good within me according to the scriptures. And yet God in his mercy has not left us alone. He has actually provided not just a way, but a marvelous way. It's through Christ that if we repent, if we agree with him about the sin that we all are guilty of, and we turn we can be made right 
not because of the rightness that's in us, but because of the rightness that's in Christ. He's the one. It's his righteousness that we look at. This is the good news of the gospel. And this is, why, this is what we hold to. And yes, we say these things in kindness and in love. And that's, that's precisely why we say these things in kindness and love. You don't go to a doctor, and if you're really sick, and you're hoping for, if he, there's only one cure to that disease, and you're hoping that you're going to hear something good that's a way to cure it. And the doctor says, well, there's kind of many ways to it. You get to pick whatever you want, and hopefully that will work for you. Well, No, you want the way, right? And you want to be able to tell people this is the only way for cure. By the way, we're not just sick, according to the New Testament. We're actually dead. It's even worse, right? But this hope that comes. So what, what Scott's getting ready to do in just a second is to look at some ways this happens in our culture. And by the way, being religious doesn't free us, according to Paul. It actually further condemns us. Why? Because we're, fa- we're worshiping a false sense of God. We're worshiping a false God in that way. So I'd like to take a look at this passage for just a second. Uh, this is in Romans 1. I'm going to start at verse 18 to do that. By the way, in, this, in Roman numeral number two, you've seen this. And I suspect a lot of you know this already, but just kind of set a precedence of this. Just some boundaries of what these terms mean. So uh, are all religions the same? So they're broken up into three parts, right? There's monotheism. You see that? There's monotheism, which teaches that there is what? There's one God, right? Mono, there's one God. There's also polytheistic religions or polytheism. And this teaches, poly means? There are many, yeah, there are many gods. And we see examples of this. And Scott's going to give us a, a brief overview of that. And then there's pantheism. Sometimes there's a distinction between pantheism and panentheism, but we'll go pantheism in this way. And pantheism is that all is God and God is in all. This is classic Buddhism, right? So this is one of the things where if that's the case, then actually nothing becomes God after a while. If God's in everything and everything's God, then the whole idea of God kind of dissipates and goes away as well. Well, to set the stage here before, before Scott comes up, let's take a look at this passage in Romans, which we've looked at before. So this is Romans chapter 1, verse 18. A passage I know that all of you are very familiar with, but I just wanted to finish this out by looking at this passage today, one that we've come back to again and again. Verse 18, For the wrath, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against people who are sincere? No. He says it's actually against two forms against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then Paul goes on to tell us a little bit further what that ungodliness and unrighteous, how it kind of manifests itself. And Paul says this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul uses this really interesting word here of suppress. It's like a gigantic spring. You ever been out with your kid and you're playing like springs? It's like a gigantic spring. And Paul, this is the word analogy in the Greek for this, that you take a spring, you suppress it, and you hold it down as long as you can, right? And you're sitting there, you're holding this thing until eventually it's pressing back on you, right? And Paul says, in our own unrighteousness and ungodliness, this is, by the way, an indictment for all of us before Christ, that we suppress the truth. Well, the truth about what? And Paul goes on to say that. For or because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then this passage, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. If you pull this over from the Latin um, transcript, sometimes the word manifestum, where we get the word manifest, it's crystal clear about who God is, his character and his nature have been clearly perceived, and then I used this passage earlier, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. But I want to keep going, just one more, two more verses, just one more verse. The next part of this. So Paul Paul says that, without excuse, this is an indictment on everyone of all time, everywhere. The question comes in, we may not get to that today, the question comes in, well, what about people who've never heard of Christ? Well, it's not the Christ of whom they've never heard of that they're guilty of 
It's the father of whom they do know in this case. This goes for everybody. By the way, we're not born Christians. No one is. It's in God's mercy that we've heard this gospel. But this part where Paul says, they know God, we all know God is clearly perceived so that they are without excuse. All right? They're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And Paul keeps going with this. As a matter of fact, he says that they became futile in their thinking and that their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then there's a threefold exchange. So Paul says that there's an exchanging here. So, by the way, just to stop here, what is this excuse that's to be made? Well, the primary excuse that people are going to seem to be relying upon, and I've heard this a lot, is, well, I just didn't know. that I wasn't given enough information. And Paul pulls the rug out from under that excuse. He says, actually, yeah, we all know, and we, we clearly know that there's a God. And the other part of it is this. This is where I'll transition to... Scott, is that Paul in this passage goes on to talk about this exchanging that takes place. So, for example, he says that they exchanged the glory of God for other things, such as um, birds and animals and creeping things, and therefore God gave them over to this. They exchanged um, the truth about God, so they worship in other things. They exchanged, and here's our culture today, right? They exchanged natural relations as well. And God gives them over to that. Brothers and sisters, what Paul's saying here is that we are very religious. And we will worship something. We'll either worship things, idols, or if you think about it in that third exchange, we'll worship an image of our own self in that. And this is the depravity of all of us, of mankind that we see. But once again, we have hope in this gospel that we've talked about as well. So Scott's going to come up, and he's going to talk about, yes, these religions, how these manifested themselves, what do they hold to. And in particular, I've asked Scott to do this, to look at how these religions may hold a view of who Jesus is, which we've looked at a lot, and how does that work? How would you talk to someone who holds some of these views. So Scott can't cover every religion, but we're going to try to hit some really big ones today as well. So brief transition. make it, I promise. I think we made it. Can you guys hear me? Is that good? Great. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant, I'm happy to teach about world religions, but what I don't want to do in you guys is instill fear or revulsion or disgust. What I don't want to do is teach about these world religions and we come away thinking, wow, we're so good, we have the truth. Uh, the only reason we have the truth is because God has revealed it to us. It's not anything we've done, but it's by His grace. We are people to be pitied and condemned if what we believe is not true. And I want us to remember that, that the reason why we know these things are true is not because of the things that we've done. So as we look at these world religions, I don't want us to think that we're better. But I do want us to have compassion, similar to Jesus when He looked at the people and He had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's essentially what these people are. They are sheep without a shepherd. So when we study world religions, particularly how I'm gonna, how we're going to take it today, we're going to look at what, I'm gonna, what I call points of divergence. So when, point, when a point diverges, that means that they share. That's, no one can see that. I can't even see that. Um, <laughs> I'll make it a little bit bigger. Okay, so when a point diverges, it goes two separate ways, but it shares a point in common. So with these world religions, we, we do, we, in fact, we, we have things in common. With Islam, we believe that God exists. More than that, we believe that we believe in a monotheistic conception of God. Now, now, where we believe or what we believe about that monotheism is different. We'll get into that. 
but I want us to understand that we have points of commonality with these religions, but we just go separate ways with them. So what I want you guys to take away is that we have things in common with these world religions, and we can have conversations with these people about why or how we believe different and separate things about one thing, if that makes sense. So understand that as we're, as we're talking, I want us to take these away, take these questions away, these points of divergence, if you will, as um, ways that we can understand and relate to people of other faiths um, and talk about what they believe and simultaneously what we believe. Uh, so first, we're going to start with Islam. This is probably better. Thank you so much. Um, so first, we're going to start with Islam. So Islam, as, as your handout already says, is a monotheistic religion. It teaches that Allah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with Allah from here on out. Allah is simply the Arabic for God. Um, Allah is absolutely one. He is, he is one. They, they use a word called um, a monad, which means he is one in and of himself. Uh, Muslims and religious pluralists will say that, well, if, if Allah simply means God, then Christians who worship God and Muslims who worship Allah, which is simply God, they, they must worship the same God, right? Right? Absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. We believe completely different things about God. So if, if Allah... So think about... We'll, we'll put it like this. Let's say I had lunch with, with Chris Sutterfield yesterday. And I'm... Uh, you guys all know who, who Chris is. And as I'm talking about Chris, I say, yeah, Chris is, you know, he's a, like five foot two. He is from Mexico and he's a college student. You guys would probably think, oh, that's probably not the Chris Sutterfield who just taught us, right? Chris is not 5'2", he's six foot. He teaches at a private Christian school. Uh, he's from America. So what I'm, we have two same names, but we, have, we believe different things about those people. It makes them different people. So what I want to do is talk about how the Christian God and how the Muslim God are different. So what we believe about the Christian God is that he's triune. He's God the Father. He's God the Son. He's God the Holy Spirit. In Islam, this is an egregious sin. This is blasphemy. It's this idea. It's called shirk. Uh, joining partners with Allah is what they say. It is the unforgivable sin in Islam. There is a Muslim uh, scholar his name is Imran Nazir Hossein, says that no one has the freedom, no matter how well-intentioned, to ascribe to Allah false names, such as Father or Son or Holy Spirit. Allah is not God the Father. He is not God the Son. He is not God the Holy Spirit in Islam. In Christianity, and specifically, if you, specifically, excuse me, if you go to Ephesians 1, and you see how Paul breaks down Ephesians 1, he attributes God the Father, God the Son, and God the, and God the Holy Spirit in our salvation. God the Father ordains or chooses our salvation. God the Son secures it. And God the Holy Spirit seals us in that salvation. There's a, a famous... Um, actually, he preached here, Thibidi Anyabwile, if you guys remember, about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. A former Muslim, obviously now a Christian pastor... He says that outside of the Christian God, there is no salvation, citing Ephesians 1 for the exact same reason. We believe that a triune God secures our salvation, in, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1. Islam teaches that God is not triune. So if we were to go back to this mountain analogy, if we were climbing the mountain and we came to the top, we would find a completely different God than what we believe. So it must be a different mountain, Right? If, if, if we have a different way of getting there and we understand the top to be different, it can't be the same mountain. Mount Kilimanjaro is different than the Himalayan mountains, right? They're different. Second point I'd like to make is that they understand Jesus to be different. And that's where this, this book, this red book that we've been giving away, Who is Jesus, is incredibly important. What we understand or what we teach about Jesus sets us apart. A couple weeks ago when I taught last, I cited John 8. Uh, Jesus essentially tells the Pharisees that if you do not believe that I am, 
excuse me, aligning himself or identifying himself as the God of Exodus 3.14, whom, whom God reveals himself to be to Moses, you will die in your sins. If we reject who Jesus says he is, unfortunately, we will die in our sins. Right? So the question of who Jesus is is, is of the utmost importance. In Islam, Jesus is actually quite important. But he's not God. Islam teaches that Jesus is a messenger. He is uh, similar to Muhammad. He has a specific message for a specific group of people, specifically first century Palestinian Jews. Jesus existed, or, or God created, Allah created Jesus that he may preach the Injil, Arabic for gospel, to the first century Palestinian Jews. But now, Muhammad, now this is part of what's called the Shahada, which is the, the central tenet of Islam, that there is but one God and Muhammad is his prophet or his messenger. Uh, they teach that Muhammad is the better or the kind of the ultimate um, messenger, that he culminates and is the, is the final bit of revelation from God. So already we see this kind of dichotomy, which is just simply two, die, two. Two ideas in tension with one another uh, between Jesus and Muhammad. Now, if we believe uh, what the New Testament says about Jesus, then we, we, we know that he's more than a, a messenger, right? He's, he's God. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 makes this very clear. Paul applies what's called the Shema, which was the, the, the Jewish vocal confession that, that God is one. Jesus, or Paul applies that Shema to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Paul understands that the one God is Jesus Christ. Islam teaches that God, uh, Jesus is simply a messenger who, who lived... Didn't, didn't die. That's a whole other thing that we could get into if you wanted to. If you wanted to ask questions, that would be a good question for you to ask. What do they believe about the crucifixion? Um, but we won't get into that here. So Islam has a completely different understanding of who Jesus is. They believe he's simply a messenger, a prophet. But we believe that he's more than that. We believe that he's God incarnate. We believe that he's our prophet, our high priest, as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, makes explicitly clear. And we believe he's our king. That he is the, the, the successor, the inheritor of the Davidic throne uh, that is foretold in the Old Testament. So here we believe different things about God. And if, again, if we believe different things about God, then naturally, we as people who believe Jesus is God, we're going to believe different things about Jesus with Islam, right? Makes sense. Lastly with Islam, and I'm sorry guys, I'm talking so fast. I'm looking at the time. I've got like 25 minutes to go through three more religions, so I'm trying to pump through these things. If you guys have questions or want me to talk slower, just say Scott talk slower. Um, but I want to I want to give these religions their their due, and I want to want to discuss them with you. Islam teaches uh, sin differently. They understand sin differently. Uh, they teach that sin is simply disobedience. Uh, it's 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 not adhering to the precepts that uh, Allah has uh, ascribed. That what Allah says, if, if you do something counter to Allah, that's a sin, and that's ultimately your issue. If you remember, Chris has used this big word, and I think he actually he did use it today. It's, it's ontological. It's this idea of beinghood. When we talk about ontology, we talk about being. Uh, Muslims believe that we're born ontologically good. That we are by nature good. The, um, in the Hadith, if you guys know what the Hadith is, uh, it's, it's simply reputed sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, they, depending on which school of Islam uh, a Muslim would hold to, they hold these as authoritative, but they're kind of just generally recognized as good things. Um, again, that gets into different schools of Islam, so that's kind of difficult, but generally speaking, if a hadith or a saying is ascribed to um, Muhammad, a Muslim will take it as authoritative. So in this specific hadith, Muhammad says that Allah said, I created my servants in the right religion, but devils made them go astray. 
Then the prophet said, Each child is born in a state of fitra. Then his parent fitra is, there's no real good English translation of it, but it's as far as I can tell, uh, in Arabic it means purity. Just complete cleanness. I would, I would almost say that it's, it's very close to our idea of holiness. I mean, it's, it's almost like a state of perfection. Um, each child is born in a state of fitra. Then his parents make him a Jew, a Christian, or a Zoroastrian. It's a monotheistic religion from Persia. We don't need to get into it. It's almost dead now. Um, or a Zoroastrian. The way an animal gives birth to a normal offspring... Have you noticed that any were born mutilated? And that's just referring to male circumcision. That was um, common practice in Judaism and Christianity. Uh, Sorry, Judaism. Um, Paul would rebuke me. Read Galatians. Um, So what he's saying here, what Muhammad is saying here, is that everyone is born a Muslim. And this is actually a doctrine they hold, that everyone is born Muslim. Uh, then, Then later on, Devils made them go astray. Parents make their kids a Jew. Parents make their kids a Christian. Parents make their kids a Zoroastrian. Um, Allah creates kids perfectly and then babies perfectly. And then they choose against Allah. That's their sin. They, they, they're disobedient and they go into other religions. But of course, Christianity teaches that we're born in sin. Psalm 51 David, David cries out that, that he is born into iniquity. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature children of wrath, intrinsic to us. This idea of children, right? This, this idea of innocence? Well, actually Paul says that we're children of wrath. We are, we are under wrath. We, are, we, are, we belong to wrath. We're evil, right? Christianity does not have very many good things to say after the fall, Right? Paul makes this clear in Romans 5. After the fall, we're not good. Right? That's why we need Jesus. And of course, if, if we mess with how we understand Jesus, then of course we're going to understand things um, differently when it comes to sin. We believe that Jesus came to give us new natures. Allah teaches, or Islam teaches, that Allah sent the prophets to, be, um, to teach the right way. Um, that's the idea of Sharia. I'm sure you guys have heard of Sharia. Uh, Sharia is Arabic for a way to water, which actually I think is a very beautiful saying, but it simply means the, the right way, the way to life, essentially. Um, this is what Sharia is. This is how we're, we relate to Allah, is through law. But of course, in Christianity, we relate to God through Jesus, through his perfection. So we understand sin to be different. Now again, that was a high, high overview, high octane overview of Islam. So now we're going to kind of move into Mormonism. Um, the, the, the first point there is understanding of God. Open parenthesis, S, close parenthesis, question mark. You can add that onto your thing. <sighs> to be as brief as possible, Mormon doctrine teaches that our God was not always God. It's important to note, just for your, for your sake, for our sake, God, uh, in, in Mormonism, Elohim, you see that word in the Bible, uh, in, in the Old Testament, that's God the Father. And then when you see Jehovah, that's Jesus. Two different gods. So at the very least, they believe in two different gods. They believe that God is different, a different God. God the Father is a different God than Jesus, and Jesus is a God separate, two separate gods. They also believe the Holy Spirit is another God. So they, for this earth, they believe in three gods that kind of govern or or watch over this earth. Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard of Joseph Smith. He is the first prophet um, of, of the Mormon church. They call his kind of, his time, they call it the restoration. It's the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believe that apostasy came into uh, the church in the early first century. And uh, ever since that point, up until uh, about mid-19th century, uh, there were false teachings corrupting the church. And Joseph Smith would come along, and he would restore the church. Joseph Smith, in his most famous sermon, it's called the King Follett Discourse, says this, 
We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. These are incomprehensible ideas to some, but they are simple. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for certainty the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another and that he was once a man like us. That, the, that, the, that God, the Father of us all, dwelt on earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. And I will show it from the Bible. Mormonism teaches that Elohim was once like Chris. He was once a man. But then that, that he would go under what's called exaltation, which means he becomes God. So Elohim, our God, was not always God. You can see why this is a bit troubling for Christian orthodoxy. But what I think is perhaps a bit more troubling is, is what it logically entails. If God became a God, that means that he was subject to another God. He had to follow the plan of salvation, is what they call it, for another God. So God followed that plan, became a God, is now God of us. But that means that there are more gods. Mormonism is essentially, and I have this on the, on the outline, it's a polytheistic religion. It teaches multiple gods. Now, what they'll say, and what, what I've, I've, I have a lot of Mormon friends, there's actually a, I don't know, it's like a, they, it's, it's like, they call it the Institute. They have what's called Institute there. Um, they, they come on campus. They're really great people. I would encourage you to get to know them. Super nice. Um, what they essentially say is, no, no, Scott, we're actually monotheists. We worship one God. Well, that's not what monotheism means. Monotheism means that you expressly believe that there is one God, only one. Polytheism is the belief that there are multiple gods. If Mormons believe, and, and Joseph Smith says this himself in his writings, he, he refers to what's called the Council of Gods, um, that the co Council of Gods created the universe. Um, sorry, organized the universe. Another long story. I want to be fair to the religions. They don't believe in creation out of nothing. They actually believe that there were pre-existent things that already existed, pre-existent. And they, these gods just kind of organized and shaped and, and moved them into what we have now is, is, is the universe. Um, so Lorenzo Snow, he's, he was the fifth president of the LDS Church after uh, Joseph Smith was, was murdered. Uh, he says it like this, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. But of course, this runs completely counter to, to what Christian orthodoxy has taught for 2,000 years, what, what, what Judaism taught prior to that. Um, we have Psalm 90. The whole thing is about God's being God from everlasting to everlasting. We have uh, verses like Isaiah 43, 13, or Romans 1, 20, as, as we've been discussing, that God has an eternal nature. He has always existed. In Isaiah 43, 10, God even says this of himself, that, I have the quote here, I was going to quote it from memory, I forgot it just now. Before me was no God formed, nor shall there be any after me. When I've talked to my Mormon friends about this verse, they simply say, it's, in, it's incomprehensible, Scott. We'll, we'll never know. I'm like, it's, it's not incomprehensible. It's just, it's, it's right here. Could, could it be not incomprehensible, but a, but a contradiction? And they just say, no, Scott, we, no. It's, it's incomprehensible. It's not, my friends. It's, it's right here. The second one. Understanding of Scripture and authority, as uh, Chris talked about, it has also used another big word, an important word, epistemological. It's how we know things. My friend Austin over here, philosophy graduate student now, congratulations, he's going to do very well. Um, he knows all about epistemology. If you want to know all about epistemology, go talk to Austin. That's his area of expertise. But epistemology is how we know what we know. So, as, as I said earlier, the reason why we know truth is because God has revealed it to us. He reveals it to us through the Bible. They have different um, texts, if you will, that God uses to reveal himself to them. So, they have four. One of which is the Bible, but they will, they, the, this is their caveat, and this is in their official doctrines. It's, uh, we believe the Bible, comma, 
insofar as it's translated correctly. Uh, that's kind of their, their caveat, the thing that they always say. They also have, and if you're lucky and you, if you ask real nice and bat your eyelashes a little bit, they will give you this. Um, I believe Matt Gum uh, gave this to us, I, I believe, I think. Um, this is really awesome. I actually have one of these. It's blue. Um, it has the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, which is their, their other um, you know, text of authority, and the Pearl of Great Price. Now, the Book of Mormon is, I say this, it's, it's tame enough. You won't really find too much, too much in there that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's when you get into the Doctrines and Covenants, or the Pearl of Great Price, or you'll go to what Brigham Young, who, if my ancestral line is to be believed, I may actually be related to Brigham Young. Kind of wild. He moved the Mormons to Utah after Joseph Smith was killed. What Brigham Young teaches when he teaches that his sermons are scripture. And what he teaches is essentially what Joseph Smith taught, which is that there are, are multiple gods, that we can become a god. Um, so Book of Mormon is, is tame enough. You get a little bit more esoteric, kind of different doctrines, um, specifically in Doctrines and Covenants. But they, they would be happy to give this to you if you ask. If, if a Mormon comes to your doorstep, and if, if you hear me say one thing, please just hear me say this. We should be a people that praise God and say thank you when he brings people to our doorstep to share the gospel with. We shouldn't kind of be like, oh man, the Mormons are coming to my door again. <laughs> again? Guys, let's... If, if I can... Re, if, if, if I could say it like this, and this is just too much me as it is to you guys, if, if we're not, we are not in love with the gospel enough if we're not praising God that he's bringing people to our doorstep to share that message with. And I think that in function, in practice, we deny its power when we do that. And that's, I think that's sinful. I do that all the time. Um, so please don't hear me saying that that's just you guys. I do it all the time. Um, if they believe God to be different, um, naturally they're going to believe Jesus to be different. And naturally these texts are going to teach different things about Jesus. Um, so they, they have different things about Jesus. If you would like to know more about that, please, during Q&A time, hopefully in 11 minutes, um, I would love to field those questions, but I'm going to kind of go past that. Just know that they obviously, they believe that Jesus is... Um, created. They don't believe that he, they believe he's God. He became God because divinity was given to him. Um, not that it's inherent or intrinsic to him. So they believe that again, Jesus was once a man similar to Elohim, attained Godhood, just like God the Father did. So different understanding of scripture or authority. The next one is going to be understanding of grace. And this one's really big, right? Because we believe that we're saved by grace, that it is, it's grace that saves us. And if, and if I may be blunt and honest, Mormonism teaches a false gospel. They believe that they're saved by grace alone. After all you can do. There's a very famous verse in, it's, it's 2 Nephi, which is just a prophet. 2 Nephi 25 I believe it's 2 Nephi 25, 23, I think is the verse. I'm probably wrong. Someone may want to fact check me. The verse essentially says that we are saved by grace after all we can do. What that verse is saying is that grace is not, and this is what Mormons have taught, uh, Mormon teachers have taught on this verse for almost about 150 years. It's a really young religion, guys found in the 19th century, super young. Uh, they teach that grace is not enacted or given to us until we work as hard as we can. Guys, this runs contrary, counter to the gospel. Ephesians 2, it's, if you listen closely, you hear kind of reminiscent of Ephesians 2 in there. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, where Paul says that um, we are saved by grace through faith. It is not by works so that no one may boast. I believe it's Romans 11.5 says that if, if, if works had anything to do with it, it wouldn't be grace anymore. And yet, they teach that we are saved 
by grace after all we can do. The gospel, as Christianity has understand it, is the story of how God is redeeming and reconciling all things back to himself in Jesus. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 where he, he states that creed. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about creeds in the New Testament. This creed that according to the scriptures, Jesus died and rose again for the sins of the world. Died for the sins of the world and rose again on the third day. Um, the gospel for Mormons is essentially what we do in, in, in response to that. And there are things that we have to do or we will not be saved. So the first one is that we have to place our faith um, in Jesus. Sounds similar enough, but it's, it's actually faith is something that, that we put on Jesus. Uh, Christianity classically teaches that faith is actually a gift that God gives us by His Spirit that we place in Jesus. Uh, we have to repent of our sins, and we have to continually repent. I asked uh, Elder So Cool was his name, and that is so cool that his name is so cool. Um, he, he, I, I said, hey man, I, I sinned today. I am a sinner. I sin often. What does that mean? And he says that it means you're not, you're not saved. If, if you sin and you don't repent of that sin, you're, no long, you're outside of the fold of God's chosen people. So you kind of like do this like dance of in, out, in, out, in, out when you sin. It's, it's a bit different. Um, again, Ephesians 1, Paul teaches that, that we are sealed in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Sealed. Mormon t- Mormonism teaches that grace is what's called divine strength. That, that we're given divine strength that we can perform the works that save us. So that, that, that divine strength is given so that we may be, this is a third point of their gospel, that we may be baptized for the remission of sins. They believe in salvation through baptism. You must absolutely be saved, sorry, baptized to be saved in Mormonism. That's obviously not what Christianity teaches. Um, also, moreover, they believe that you have to be baptized by the right person. They believe in something called the Melchizedek priesthood. So you guys have heard of Melchizedek. He's the man that uh, Abraham paid a tithe to in, I believe it's Genesis 14. I'm probably wrong. Um, you don't hear anything about him until you get to, again, what I'm probably wrong about. I think it's Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 7, um, where I'm getting a nod. I like that affirmation. Thanks, Jonah. Um, where, where Jesus is, is the better Melchizedek, right? He's the, he's the priest in the priestly order of Melchizedek. Well, they believe that they now, again, they, they have the Melchizedek priesthood, and you have to be baptized by somebody who is a Melchizedek priest. So, going back to Elder So Cool again, which again is... Yes! That's all I really wanted from these past six weeks. Um... I said, hey, man, I was baptized by a pastor in, in my local church. What does that mean? And he's like, oh, great. Was it in a Mormon temple? And I said, brother, it was a local church. <laughs> and he said, I'm sorry, man. You don't have remission for sins. Yes, I do, guys. Jesus has paid for my sins. He's paid for our sins if we placed our faith in him and have repented of those sins. So Mormonism teaches that, that grace is essentially not enough. Uh, we have to enact upon that grace or work with that grace. They would cite things like Philippians 2.12 where it says, work out your salvation to fear and trembling. But coincidentally, they won't go to the next verse which says that it is God who works in you to will and good pleasure, for his good pleasure. God works in us. Um, he works out our salvation through us. Mormonism teaches that God's grace saves us because we use that grace to work for our salvation. Christianity teaches that God's grace saves us, period. That's it. We understand grace differently. Guys, we have a total of four minutes. I'm so sorry. I wish that I could, I could go through Jehovah's Witnesses and Hinduism, but I, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. I would like to turn it to you guys, though, would you rather me spend these last about three and a half minutes now, three and a half minutes on Jehovah's Witnesses or Hinduism? 
Jehovah's Witness. That was quick. Okay, that's good. I have a better grasp on Jehovah's Witnesses anyways. Um, so the first one, understanding of Jesus. And guys, I hope you're seeing a pattern here. Um, what we believe about Jesus necessarily separates us from other people. The claims of Jesus, as Chris has said, and as I think that we've tried to communicate these past six weeks, these claims are exclusive. They separate us from people, not because we separate ourselves, but because Jesus is holy, he's separate. So when we cling to what is different or separate or holy, we naturally will be different. We're going to be separate. So Jesus and what he teaches about himself separates us from people. So, so how then do Jehovah's Witnesses understand Jesus? Well, they believe, and this is quoting from their official doctrine, uh, that he is the only one created by Jehovah. Jehovah creates Jesus, the only, the only creation. That's why they, uh, there's a, I believe it's in John 1, there's a, a very interesting Greek word that John uses. It's called monogenes, and it means the uh, only begotten. Uh, they, they, they take that literally, begotten, literally. Uh, they mean that God literally begot Jesus, created Jesus. Um, and that's why they have that special relationship is because um, God created Jesus. So Jesus then, after he was created, he then created all things. So you can kind of see how they're, they're trying to reconcile these, these different verses in Scripture that attribute creation to Jesus. We've got a Hebrews 2, I believe it's 11 to 12. John 1, uh, John 1, John 1, 1, 2, 3. That whole section right there. Um, Colossians 1, 16 to 17, which we'll get into in a second. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to kind of accommodate to what Scripture teaches about Jesus. So the Watchtower, which is the international organization that Jehovah's Witnesses are attached to, um, released a book in 1989 called Reasoning from the Scriptures, where it says that the archangel Michael is Jesus Christ. So the evidence indicates that the Son of God was known as Michael before he came to earth and is known also, I should have worn my glasses, known also by that name since his return to heaven where he resides as the glorified spirit, Son of God. So Jesus, to Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael. Interesting. So, um, I probably, well, we'll make this clear in a second. Um, they have a different translation of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation. That's going to be the second point, understanding of Scripture. They use a different Scripture. Um, we'll get into that in a second. But I want, to, I want to talk about this specific verse, Colossians 1.16. Um, in the New World Translation, it says that because by means of Him, Him being Jesus, all other things were created. Now, a normal translation, if any of you have it, has an ESV, NIV, NASB, NLT, any of those, um, they will say something like, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. Do you guys notice the slight difference? I, I emphasized it a little bit, but do you, do you guys hear the difference? In the first translation, it said other. All other things were created. 20th century textual critic, probably the most important textual critic of the 20th century is Bruce Metzger. He has a very helpful um, article on Jehovah's Witnesses, which I think I gave to you a few weeks ago, or a reference at least. Uh, he writes this. He says that here the word other has been unwarrantably inserted. It is not present in the original Greek and was obviously used by the translators in order to make the passage refer to Jesus being on, as being on par with other created things. And this is consistent with what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Uh, unfortunately, guys, we're just about out of time, but I want to get to just cover understanding Scripture really briefly. I just want to make a very interesting point that I find to be historically interesting. Jehovah's Witnesses were founded in the 1860s by a man named Charles Taze Russell. He read through the Bible, he didn't like the Trinity, and he didn't like hell. So he formulated doctrines or ideas and, they, 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 and founded the Jehovah's Witnesses, essentially. And they had a specific set of beliefs 
for 90 years until they would then publish the New World Translation in 1950. So it's interesting to note that when you go through the New World Translation, it's generally a fine translation, but parts that speak of Jesus' divinity, Philippians 2, 1 Corinthians 8, as I've said, Romans 9, 5, uh, 2 Peter 1, uh, any of these verses, they're changed. They're different. You'll find weird things. John 1, um, in the beginning, this is New World Translation, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Never, never since we've had English translations for the past 400 years has there been an A inserted before that God. Never. They have a different, I would, I would argue, they, would, they have a different Bible. They've, and I, and I want to be as polite as possible, but I also want to be as firm as possible. They have marked up the Bible and changed it enough to fit with what they already believed in the 1860s onward. Do you see how they, they developed their doctrines mid-19th century and then they published a book that coincidentally where it speaks against what they already believed, they changed it. It's interesting. So again, guys, I'm so sorry. I didn't get to cover Hinduism. I know Chris really wanted me to teach on Hinduism. If you want to talk to me about Hinduism, again, it's not super my area of expertise, honestly, from an experiential standpoint. I don't have that many Hindu friends, so I've not had that many conversations with Hindus, but I've, I've read a bit, so I'm kind of familiar, but you guys would probably be better served in, in looking at another area. But